Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign over all of this world. You are sovereign over all the nations of the world. You're the God who deserves glory and honor and power for you made everything we see, including us. And we pray that that's what we are doing as we gather together this morning through the singing of the songs that we have just done, Lord, that you may be glorified and honored and lifted up through the teaching of your word, both here in the auditorium and in the greenhouse and in the junior, senior high classes. And Father, through the taking, partaking of the bread and cup, which is so significant for us and reminds us of what you did for us on Calvary's cross. Thank you for so great a salvation that you offer to us fully and freely by simply putting our trust in him. If there's even one with us this morning in this service or the second service who have yet to put their trust in your son Jesus instead of themselves, instead of religion, but put their trust in Jesus, I pray they would do it this day. Guide us, Lord, as we study your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19, is a pivotal chapter in the book of Acts. Uh, in fact, one of the commentators called it a hinge chapter. Luke uses a technique as he goes through the book to introduce a person or to introduce a place that he's going to deal with more greatly later. And that's what he does here in Acts chapter 11. He's introducing us to the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch becomes the center of the missionary effort of the church, and it will be the center and the focus of what Luke tells us from now on in the book of Acts. And so it's a, it's a, a mighty important church and a church that we need to understand. It is from Antioch that Paul went out on his missionary journeys. So it's an important city, and we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But Antioch becomes the center of the missionary effort as more and more churches reach out to Gentiles. We saw how God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles in the last two chapters, in this chapter and the previous one. And so now we're seeing how more and more churches are reaching out to Gentiles. It's at Antioch that the believers are first called Christians. It's at Antioch that believers are first called Christians. And we'll talk more about that when we get to that in this passage. But it wasn't a term of endearment, just so you understand that. So what we see here is the... the church begins to establish its own identity. The church begins to establish an identity outside of Judaism. At the beginning, the church was seen as a sect or a part of Judaism. But now we see, starting at the middle here of the book of Acts, or close to the middle, in Acts 11, we see that the church establishes more and more and more and more its own identity, and the rift with Judaism becomes greater and greater and greater. 
Now, there's a couple of things that I just want to mention before we get into the details of this chapter, and that's this. The believers ministered effectively in a hostile culture. I think we've gotten so to expect that because of the freedom that we've had in America, at least up till now, uh, we've gotten to come to expect that culture will at least uh, uh, allow us to teach the Word of God, allow us to uh, teach what the Word of God says, uh, and we've gotten used to a culture that's not hostile to us. But that's all changing, isn't it? More and more and more, our culture is hostile to the truth of the gospel, hostile to the truths of the Word of God. And more and more, we're facing that. Well, you know, we get the idea that it's supposed to be that they, they accept us, and they accept our wonderful message, and they accept our wonderful witness, and we forget that for most of the church, throughout church history, and even today, for most of the church, the culture is hostile to them. We aren't expect, experiencing anything different or anything new. Our culture is going to become more and more and more hostile to the truths of the Bible, more and more hostile to the message that we share about the need to put our faith in Jesus Christ. So I really like this chapter, and I'm try, that's what I'm trying to say through this. I really like this chapter because it shows us that the church can minister effectively in the, even in the midst of a hostile culture. The church can minister effectively. In fact, I think sometimes the church can minister more effectively in the midst of a hostile culture because it really purifies us. It really purifies us. So, Rather than running around bemoaning everything that's happening and, and how uh, the truths of the Word of God are being set aside, rather than running around doing that, let's look at it as we talked about last week. Let's look at it and say, what's the opportunity before us? What is the opportunity before us? So they ministered effectively in a hostile culture. Secondly, they all witnessed they all witnessed they realized and we're going to see that as we get into these first couple of verses they realized that it was the job of all of them to share their faith it was the job of all of them to reach out to the unbelievers around them with the gospel of jesus christ it wasn't just for a select few I find it interesting, and we'll get into it in just a moment, that the church grew through nameless, faceless believers. They had names, they had faces, we just don't know what they are. In chapter 11. And we're going to look at that. So they all witnessed, they all shared their faith, they realized that they all had that responsibility. Uh, a third thing that I see as we get through this chapter and uh, from chapter 11 through verse 19 through verse 30, the third thing I see here is they had a great respect for the teaching of the Word of God. They had great respect for the teaching of the Word of God. They gave teaching a priority. They gave teaching a priority. So let's, let's look, let's start. Follow with me as I read verse 19. 
Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. Verse 20, Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Antioch will become a vital and important city to the church. One writer called it the birthplace of foreign missions. The birthplace of foreign missions. It's from Antioch that Paul and Barnabas would take the gospel on the first missionary journey. It's the site of the first Jewish-Gentile church, the first missions-sending church. Uh, it still exists today in a very different form. At the time of, that Luke is writing, Antioch had a population of about a half million people. It was an extremely important city in the Roman Empire. The present day, uh, what's left of Antioch is called Antichia, and it has a population of 35,000 at this time. So it still exists today. It's 300 miles north of Jerusalem and 20 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. It was Paul's base of operations, and it was uh, Peter also spent time here in Antioch, according to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Now, there were many cities in that day named Antioch. This is the, the one that we're talking about is Antioch in Syria. Antioch in Syria, if you have a paper Bible and you have maps in the back, you can probably easily find Antioch and you'll see where it is. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire in the day that, that Luke writes. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time that Luke writes. It had a large Jewish population. It was a commercial center on the Orontes River. It was grossly immoral. Ritual prostitution was a part of the worship of the pagans in that place, of the temple worship. A couple of the writers, I'm kind of conflating a couple of the writers and how they described Antioch. They said it was a lovely cosmopolitan city, but it was a byword for luxurious immorality. It was a lovely cosmopolitan city, but it was a byword for luxurious immorality. It was famous for chariot racing and a kind of deliberate pursuit of pleasure which went on literally night and day, and most of all, the worship of Daphne, Daphne at a temple five miles outside of the town with priestesses who were temple prostitutes. Commerce and trade in Antioch connected the East and the West. So it was a prosperous city, it was an important city commercially, and it was a morally bankrupt city. I find that amazing that a city of that sort became the place where the church was born, Jew and Gentile together, a Jewish-Gentile church, which became the center of missions from this section of Acts on. 
It didn't stop them, the immorality. It didn't stop the early believers from reaching out to those around them. In fact, because of all the immorality, because of the bankruptcy of this city, the believers had a ready audience for the gospel message. For sin only satisfies for a season. Sin only satisfies for a season. People can only run from the Lord so long. And so it was a ready place for the gospel. It would seem to us like maybe God could have chosen a more holy place for this church that would become the mission center of the world of its day. It would seem like God could have chosen a holier place, but He didn't. He chose a place of rampant immorality which I think gave the church the impetus to reach out. One writer describes Antioch this way, a few persecution escapees stopped when they reached the free Roman city of Antioch on the Orontes River, third largest city in the Roman Empire with a population of 500,000. Antioch was one of the most beautiful cities in the empire, often called Antioch, the beautiful, or Queen of the East. Its balmy air was fragrant with the scent of roses from which rare Antiochian perfumes were made. It was a cosmopolitan town from all over the empire. People moved there to share the prosperity. Among the migrants were many Jews. Jews were well treated in Antioch. The synagogue there was considered the second most beautiful on earth. Gentile converts to Judaism and God-fearers were, no, were numerous. Antioch was a pagan city filled with temples at the foot of Mount Silpius. South of the city was a huge rock formation that looked like a faceless human head. Pagan mythology said this was the head of Sharon, the god in charge of transporting dead souls to the underworld. Near, nearby was the Grove of Daphne, worship center for Apollo, Artemis, Astarte, and other gods. Worship at the grove featured ritual prostitution. The morals of Daphne was a worldwide expression for sexual immorality. In fact, the Roman satirist Juvenal said this, the sewage of the Syrian Orontes has for long been discharged into the Tiber. It was so immoral that even Rome thought it was immoral. Now, if Rome thought it was immoral, that's really bad. Well, another writer said, it seems incredible, but nonetheless it is true that it was in a city like this that Christianity took the great stride forward to becoming the religion of the world. We need only think of that to be reminded that no situation is hopeless. Now I've reminded you. Now I've reminded you. No situation is hopeless. And the worse things get, the more opportunity you and I will have to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we can just keep focused on that. If we can just keep focused on that, we will have great opportunities before us. Well, 
we're told here that some of them in verse 20, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. What we find here is that these nameless, faceless disciples, now certainly not to God, but we don't know their names. We don't see any faces when we think about these people. They are nameless, faceless disciples who reached out to the Gentiles around them. Now, some people wonder why are none named, and there are lots of reasons about that. I think it's because there were too many to name. I think none of them are named. None of these people, none of these believers who shared the gospel with those around them and saw a great church begun in Antioch, I think the reason none of them were named is because there were too many. Luke would have had a problem listing every name of every person who shared his or her faith with the people around them and established this mighty church in Antioch. I think there were too many people to name because they understood that it was all of their responsibility to share their faith. Something I think that we need to understand it's all of our responsibility, not just staff of the church, not just the elders of the church, not just the leaders of the church, but every believer in the church has a responsibility to share their faith in Jesus Christ. And we've talked about that over the last couple of weeks, and we talked about how to do that. I like what William Barclay said. It has always been one of the tragedies of the church that men have wished to be noticed and named when they did something worthwhile. I am so glad we're past that today. Right? We're way past that today. We don't want credit much. When they did something worthwhile, what the church has always needed, perhaps more than anything else, is people who never care who gains the credit for it so long as the work is done. Oh, I love that. Church needs people who don't care who gets the credit so long as the work gets done. Oh, Lord, deliver us from pride. Deliver us from wanting to be seen for what we do. One of my absolute favorite passages, I have probably two dozen favorite passages from my utmost for his highest by Oswald Chambers. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Great. Fantastic. By the way, if you, if you read my utmost for his highest and you read the original and you say, gee, I don't even know what he's talking about half the time, get the updated version. There's an updated version of my utmost for his highest and um, I think you'll enjoy that, but that I digress. One of my favorite passages from my utmost for, highest, for his highest is this one. Are you ready to be not so much as a drop in the bucket, 
to be so hopelessly insignificant that you are never thought of again in connection with your life you served? Are you willing to spend and be spent, not seeking to be ministered unto, but to minister? Some saints cannot do menial work and remain saints because it's beneath their dignity. It's a great question. Can we spend our lives serving the Lord? Can we spend our lives doing that which pleases Him? Can we spend our lives investing in the people around us? Can we spend our lives doing that and not care if we're ever thought of afterward? We don't get a building named after us. What a great thing. That's what these folks did. They were folks from Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, and which is the home of Barnabas, and that will become important as we go through chapter 11 because the church at Jerusalem hears about how great the church in Antioch is doing, how many people are being reached, and they said, we'd better get in on this. No, that's not what they said. We'd better, we'd better find out what's going on there. So they sent Barnabas. Well, he was the perfect person to send because this church at Antioch was begun by many people from Cyprus, perhaps people he knew. It was established by people from Cyrene, a city in North Africa. Now, why do we know the name Cyrene in the Scripture? Anybody know? Simon of Cyrene, that's right. Simon of Cyrene was pressed into service to carry Jesus' cross. It was a city in North Africa, and Simon was forced to carry Jesus' cross. You can read about that in Matthew 27. People from Cyrene were present on the day of Pentecost, according to Acts chapter 2 and verse 10, and we also see them mentioned in Acts 6, 9, and 13, 1. Well, verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, literally, that can be translated in believing they turned to the Lord. In other words, we're not talking about two steps to salvation. They believed and then they turned to the Lord. That's not what it's talking about. The Greek in that passage uh, literally is translated in believing they turned to the Lord. There's one action at view here. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we turn from sin, we turn from the world, we turn from the way that we're going away from God and we turn to God. It's all one action. Well, news of this, verse 22, reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. The Jerusalem church hears of the Antioch ministry. The apostles are still in Jerusalem, and so they think they better find out what's going on in Antioch. Uh, remember, they're already having to deal with God doing something new, God doing something different in their midst as God opens the door through Peter to Cornelius 
Gentile centurion opens the door of faith without going through the door of Judaism. And they're already dealing with that, and now they hear about this church in Antioch which is growing like crazy. And so they think we better find out what's going on. And so they send Barnabas the 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch. As I mentioned earlier, Barnabas was the, the perfect choice to go because he was from Cyprus, according to chapter 4 and chapter 11. He was generous. He was gracious. Do you remember what Barnabas' gift is? Encouragement. Encouragement. In fact, his name is actually Joseph, but the early church changed his name. They said, we're not calling you Joseph anymore. We're going to call you Barnabas. Why did they call him Barnabas? Because Barnabas means what? Encourager. He was so identified with his gift. He was so identified with his character of encouragement that they said, we can't call you Joseph any longer. We have to call you Barnabas. So he was perfect to send because he's from Cyprus. He was a generous person. He was a gracious person, an encourager. And in verse 24, we read of his spiritual qualities, which we'll talk more about as we study this chapter. Well, they send Barnabas. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. He saw the evidence of the grace of God. Now, what, what was the evidence? What did he see? What did he see that convinced him that the grace of God was at work in this church? What was it that he saw that was evidence to him that God was at work, that evidence to, was evidence to him that the Spirit of God was at work in this church? Well, he could find the same evidence that you and I can find and hopefully that you and I would find at Del Rio Bible Church. What are some of the evidences that he would find of the grace of God going on? Number one, he would look for the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Galatians and chapter 5, and you can write this down, you don't have to turn here. Starting at verse 22. I bet you many of you could quote it, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Yeah, that's where I get stuck too. Patience. Patience is next. Then what? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. You see, Barnabas looked around him and he saw people who loved one another. He saw people who had joy in their lives. He saw people who were at peace with each other, peace within, peace with God. He, he encountered people who were patient with each other. He encountered people who were kind and good and faithful and gentle and under control. You know, we say, well, he must have found some ecstatic thing going on there, some supernatural stuff. Well, I got news for you. I think when you see the fruit of the Spirit at work in a church, that's pretty supernatural. 
I think that's pretty supernatural. I think he saw the fruit of the Spirit evidenced among the believers. He saw believers who chose to put themselves under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. He saw believers who chose to live out the Word of God in their lives. He saw healed relationships because that's what happens when Jesus Christ comes into a life. He heals relationships. He saw healed relationships, healed marriages, healed families. What was the evidence of the grace of God? He saw faith. He saw an attachment to the teaching of the Word of God and the importance of the Word of God. He saw people who were serving each other. People who were serving each other. It's pretty simple to see evidence of the grace of God when you see that. When you see people who care more for each other than they care for their own things, as Paul recommended in Philippians, or I shouldn't say recommended, I think he pretty much demanded it. In Philippians chapters 1 and 2, that's how I saw the evidence of the grace of God. Verse 23 says, When he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all to do two things, to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. To remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord, to remain loyal to the Lord. He encouraged them to continue in faith, to continue growing, continue in the grace of God, continue in the Word of God. He encouraged them, be faithful to God. He encouraged them to do it with all their hearts. With all their hearts. One writer said this, the glow of the first enthusiasm might pass as often happens after a revival. It often happens in our lives too, doesn't it? When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are so excited about our newfound life. We are so excited about our newfound desire to please God. We are so excited about our newfound desire to read and study and memorize and meditate upon the Word of God. And we're so excited to tell the people around us. And then a couple of months go by. or a year, or two years, or ten years. And it's a, just routine, right? Just routine. Nothing special going on in my life. Wow, do you remember what you were like when you first came to faith in Jesus Christ? I remember in my life. Do we still love Him as much? Do we still serve Him as much? Do we still seek Him as much? Do we still want to please Him as much? Or has it all become rote, routine? 
He encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord and to do it with all their hearts. Now, it's interesting. He, uh, that phrase, with all their hearts, can literally be, literally be translated with purpose of heart or literally according to a set plan. In other words, what some believe is that Paul is saying here when he talks about doing it with all their hearts, he was telling them you have to have a plan for spiritual growth. So what's your plan? What's my plan for spiritual growth? We ought to have a plan. We ought to have a plan. I've got more to say about that, but... I really need to let Marv have all the time that he deserves, and I'm already into his time. Let me finish here for this morning. One writer said this, What Barnabas did do is again a model for us to follow. He simply encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. God doesn't need or want cookie-cutter Christians all stamped out on the model you and I provide. He wants Christians who are true to Him with all their hearts. If we help others be true to Him, they will reject sin. Okay, I want to point that out. Did you hear what he said? Did you hear what he said? If we help others to be true to the Lord, they will reject sin. And they will be responsive to God. Who is better to shape their convictions and their lifestyle than we are? But we think we're the shaper of their convictions. We think we're the shaper of their lifestyle. And so what do we do with those around us who aren't living up to what we think they should live up to? What do we do? We scold them. We shame them. We question their salvation. I found this refreshing because I've seen my I, I, I see myself scolding and shaming and questioning salvation. Instead, I love what the writer said. If we help others be true to God, they'll reject sin. We have to stop there for this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these nameless, faceless disciples who simply wanted to be obedient to you and took upon themselves the responsibility to take your word to the people around them. Thank you that they didn't shrink back because they lived in a difficult time and they didn't shrink back, shrink back because they lived in a difficult place and an immoral place but they realized it was an opportunity. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.